Well, good morning. I hope that each of you had a great Christmas um, as a, a joyful way to finish out a tough year. Uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 1, and we are going to be in the first 18 verses. John 1, 8, 1 through 18. on page 886 in the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. John 1, 1 through 18. Well, at Christmas time, it's good and right that we as Christians focus in on Jesus coming to earth, uh, being born of a virgin, becoming flesh. Uh, Last week, if you remember, Tyler did a biblical theology of the Incarnation, uh, starting at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, verse 3, and showing us from Genesis to there, the goal of the Bible is that God is with us, uh, even when we go east, even when we run from him. Uh, Today, we're going to be diving into the Incarnation again, but in a more zoomed-in fashion, Uh, In the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Uh, While there are so many distinctives that John as a whole in his book wants us to see, uh, I want to show you guys one more time the purpose statement of the whole book of John. If you remember a couple weeks ago, um, in John 2, with Jesus turning water into wine, we looked at this text. But in, in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, John writes this. Um, He writes this toward the end of his book. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what's meant to happen each and every time that we read John's gospel. Uh, We're meant to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So that's the lens through which we should view everything in the book of John. Now, we live in a strange and somewhat pluralistic world with so many different idols and gods all around us. But... What's even more alarming to me is that we live in a world with so many different Jesuses to choose from. We've got the New Age hippie Jesus, who's all about peace and love in some kind of fuzzy, undefined way. We've got the Jesus is my homeboy Jesus, who's just one of the guys, right? We've got The Jesus of scholarship, who tends to be completely stripped of his divinity. We've got the Shack book, where the Trinity, including Jesus, is severely confusing at best. We've got the Hollywood Jesus, who seems judgmental, hypocritical, angry, and pretty out of touch with reality. We've got the Jesus of Protestant liberalism, Much like the New Age hippie Jesus, who's all about love, but not much for truth. Then, 
We've got the secularist Jesus, who's nothing more than a fairy tale, or at best, just a religious moral teacher. What a strange world we live in. A world absolutely confused about Jesus. So, we'll ask the same question that we've been asking throughout the book of Mark. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's a question we've been asking in the book of Mark week in and week out. But John also has a clear answer from the very beginning of his book. Praise God that we don't have to figure this out by looking at our culture or even trying to just figure it out on our own. We can look to the word of God to answer that question. So John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. And cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. First of all, Uh, I want us to understand that these 18 verses are an unending treasure trove. Uh, In one sense, they're so simple and straightforward that we tell new believers to actually start in the book of John, and they can actually understand it. But in another sense, there are, are brilliant evangelical scholars and pastors who have exhausted thousands of pages on these 18 verses alone. I know of one doctoral seminar on the book of John that spent 13 of the 18 weeks they had just on these 18 verses. With that being said, I hope that we can walk away today with both depth and clarity as much as possible with the time we have. So here we go. Who is Jesus? First, 
Jesus is eternal. And he's always existed. Look at verse 1. When we look at the other Gospels, which, remember, are writing to convey specific truths in specific ways, they begin with Jesus' birth. Or in the case of Matthew, with John the Baptist heralding before Jesus' birth, Mark kind of appearing even as an adult later in life. But John starts differently. He says, in the beginning. Now, where have we seen those words before? Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning. We know that before anything existed, God existed. He was the one who, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. That's what's being said here about the word which is another title for Jesus. We know that from verses 14 and 17 of our text. So before you or I or any of the most important influential people that we can think about in history existed, Jesus, the Word, existed. Now, why would John start there? A phrase that our kids have learned from me is the phrase, I was born at night, but not last night, right? I've used that a time or two with Carson and Cruz, even this week, uh, to let them know that they're not dealing with someone who's new on the scene. I know what I'm doing. They're not going to pull one over on me. We see the same type of thing in the business world. How many businesses do you know of around town that rightly celebrate how long they've been in business? We have a history that goes back 35 years, family-owned and operated since 1932. The sense here is we're not going anywhere, and you can trust us. We know what we're doing. And in one sense, that's what John wants us to see on a cosmic level here. Jesus is eternal. He's always existed. He's authoritative. He isn't a fad. He doesn't shift with culture. In the beginning was the Word. He's someone who you can place your full trust in with full confidence. Second, Jesus is a person distinct from God the Father. Verses 1 and 2 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word, Jesus, was with God. This word, with, in the original language in this context, has a connotation of close communion and relationship. John wants us to know that Jesus, the Word, is distinct from the Father, yet is in close relationship with the Father. That truth is present, not just in this text, but all over the book of John. Third, Jesus is God. He's existed from the beginning. He's distinct from the Father, but Jesus is God. Again, verse 1, while John doesn't bring the Trinitarian formula, including the Holy Spirit yet, 
He's getting dangerously close here. Christians believe in one God, in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John helps us to understand part of this from the start. Jesus, the Son, the Word, is distinct from God the Father, but is God, fully and completely. J.C. Ryle, a famous older theologian, he says this. He says, The Father and the Word, though two persons, are joined by an ineffable union. Where God the Father was from all eternity, there also was the Word, even God the Son. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal, and yet their Godhead one. This is a great mystery, he says. Happy is he who can receive it as a little child without attempting to explain it. This is profound. Jesus is God. When we lived in Oklahoma, we decided for some reason to, to buy a house. And for some reason decided to renovate it, the, the whole thing, while I was starting a brand new job. We tore out carpet, we leveled the floor, we chipped out linoleum, we painted, we even put in our own new wood flooring. Here's the problem. Before that, I had never done a home improvement project. So, why would I feel confident that we could do it? Well, because Shannon's dad, Marvin, he told us we could do it. And he was able to do it. He used to build houses from the ground up. See, I didn't trust myself to do the work, but I trusted Marvin. See this. Jesus is God. Because of who he is, he's able to save us. You've got to know that from the beginning. And if you know that, It really doesn't matter what gets thrown at you. Jesus is God. You can stake your life on him. He's bigger than your problems. Bigger than your sin. He's more than just your homeboy. He's God. But this also means that Jesus is God. Yeah, kind of already said that, Drew. I know. But Jesus being God means that he's also our ultimate authority. He's our ultimate standard of truth. He declares what's good and evil, right and wrong, sinful and righteous. These things aren't relative. They're not fuzzy and undefined. Jesus is the word. He's a communicating being. He's spoken to us through the scriptures, and he's God. What I'm saying here is that as God, he gets to call the shots in our lives, and we get to submit to him. And I'm not using the word get to in jest here. Submitting to Jesus is good. Submitting to his good and perfect authority is actually a joy. It's the best way that we can live life. There's so much more we could exhaust here, but 
Let's move on. Next, Jesus created all things. Look at verse 3. It says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things. That includes you. That includes me. That includes the world around us. That includes everything. Now, certain people, let's call them heretics, they stop here and say, yeah, he created all things except for himself. They say God created him. No. Read the rest of the sentence. John almost awkwardly says the same thing twice, but in a different way. He says, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, the word, is not a created being. As mind-blowing of a mystery as that is, that's the truth. Paul spells this out a little bit more for us. If you remember when we went through the book of Colossians, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, Paul says, He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I love Paul's application here of this truth. He says, because Jesus created all things, he's all authoritative. He's holding all things together. He's the head of the church. He's preeminent in his resurrection. And he can reconcile all things to himself through the cross. Also, if Jesus created all things, he's worthy of our praise. Psalm 148 that we prayed through earlier spells that out beautiful. He's worthy of our praise. And then we come to verse 4 in our text. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus is life. Jesus is light. It's a simple sentence, but rich with meaning. Think about these two things. Life and light. What are these? Well, spiritually speaking, they're the most fundamental and foundational needs we have as human beings. Life and light. Life and light. By ourselves, we're dead and we're blind. First of all, according to Ephesians 2, before Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not in the doghouse, dead. And this is the just penalty for our sin, as spelled out in Genesis 1 through 3. Death for our sins. It's what we deserve. Guess what dead people don't do? 
anything. <laughs> That's the truth of who we are apart from Christ. Unable to do anything spiritually good. Unable to do anything that would move us toward Christ. Unable to earn or merit our own salvation. Dead. But this Jesus, this word, he's life. And that's good news, friends. He can make the unalive alive. John chapter 5, verse 21 says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. John chapter 3, using another analogy for life. Jesus is the one who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us new birth, new life. John chapter 11, Jesus physically raises Lazarus from the grave. And then he rises from the dead himself in John chapter 20. He's life. But he's also light, according to verse 4. Again, by ourselves, we're spiritually blind. Unable to see our own sin. Unable to see Jesus for who he really is. Remember all of the Jesuses that we walked through earlier. That's what you get when you've got a spiritually blind people trying to paint a portrait of Jesus in the dark. In addition, even if they painted him correctly, they'd fail to see the beauty because they'd fail to see themselves clearly. When we see ourselves and Jesus clearly, we see the unbelievable beauty of the gospel. That we are wretched sinners. And he is an all-powerful, merciful, gracious, loving God. He's life. And he's light. Finally, Jesus is a man. Verse 9 and 11 and 14. Verse 9 says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming, where? Into the world. Verse 11. He came to his own. Then, if we were confused in thinking that he just came into the world, but only as a god, John drops a theological bomb on us in verse 14. He says, in the word, meaning Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, again, weeks of sermons could be preached just on this one verse. It's amazing. It's unfathomable. It's beautiful. And it's our only hope. That same eternal, all-powerful, creating, authoritative word, Jesus, became flesh. In a, a lot of biblical contexts, this word flesh takes on the connotation of sin. But that's not what's being said here. What is being said is that Jesus became a real deal human being with skin on. First of all, that's unreal even just to think about. I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 8. This psalm is 
historically interpreted as what's called a messianic psalm, ultimately speaking of Jesus when you read it. But even in these first three verses of Psalm 8, the, the psalmist is establishing the vastness of the universe. It says, you have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars. If you've ever actually done that before, it's impossible without any reflection whatsoever not to feel small when you look out at the moon and the stars. That's the point being made here in Psalm 8. And that brings the psalmist to his next statement. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for. Okay, hold that thought. Think of the vastness of the universe and our relatively insignificance in comparison to that. Think about that. Now, not only did the Lord and creator of the universe care for man, he became man. Unreal, huh? So, why would he do that? And why does it matter? I know we're early in John, and so a doctrine of sin and sacrifice hasn't been spelled out yet in the book. But if it had, hypothetically, we'd just finish, if we, if we had hypothetically just finished studying Genesis 1 through 15, before reading John, we would know that all of us as human beings have inherited Adam's sin nature. And therefore, we sin. We would know that our sin deserves God's full and just wrath with the penalty of death. We would also know that only God can ultimately cover our sin in a way that actually works, in a way that fig leaves never could. We'd know a lot from studying Genesis 1 through 15. But how does God cover us? Well, the Old Testament temporarily answers that question with what's known as the sacrificial system. But that ultimately, we know, wasn't good enough because only a person can die in the place of a person. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says here. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, 
These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus had to become a man so that he could die for men. Romans chapter 5 also makes this abundantly clear. Through one man, many became sinners. And through one man, many became righteous. Romans 5. Similarly, in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, Paul says this. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So this Jesus, the Word made flesh, lived under the law perfectly as a historical human being. He's not just a fairy tale, as secularists would have us believe. He lived during a real time in history, a real period in history, that can be corroborated by factual evidence. He obeyed God in every single way so that he could be our spotless sacrificial lamb who would die in our place. So understand this. Because Jesus was fully man, he was qualified to pay for our sins as our substitute. But because Jesus was fully God, he was capable of paying for our sins as our substitute. These are the most important truths of Christology. Swerve away from either of them and you end up affirming heresy. Because Jesus was fully man, he was qualified to pay for our sins as our substitute. And because Jesus was fully God, he was capable of paying for our sins as our substitute. Secondarily, this Jesus who became human is someone who understands you as your high priest. Again, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Here we go. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Because Jesus was fully man, he can sympathize with you. No matter what you're going through, you can confidently draw near to him. And when you do, you'll find mercy. You'll find grace. Now, with the final minutes we have left, I want to point out two possible responses to this Jesus, the Word made flesh. And I want to be clear. There are only two responses. There's no middle ground here. Look with me at verses 9 through 13. It says, 
The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it is possible to not know and to not receive this Jesus, the Word, fully God and fully man. Simply put, a rejection of this Jesus is a rejection of spiritual life and all of the eternal benefits that we've been talking about so far. It's a rejection of our only hope of salvation. It's a rejection of God's gracious gift to a fallen, broken, dead world. At the same time, I want to be clear that rejecting God in this way doesn't defeat him. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You can't stop God's redemptive plan which was hatched before the foundation of the world and was fulfilled in Christ's death. You can't stop that. So that's one response to reject him. And look at the other possible response in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Amazing. When we turn from our sin and repentance, and when we believe in Jesus, we're given the right to become children of God. As Christians, this is our identity, child of God. Just stop and think about that. Child of God, the creator of the universe. The one who holds all things together. The one who makes the sun rise and the oceans roar. Declares you to be his adopted child with all of the privileges and benefits. What would it look like if we lived in light of that identity together as a church? Children of God. Think about that. Finally, I want to return to our theme verse, the purpose statement of the whole book of John. John wrote these things so that we might believe. What does he want us to believe here? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, fully God and fully man. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the Jesus we're called to preach in Santa Cruz. That's the Jesus we're called to display with all of our lives. That's the Jesus that we're called to worship. Let's pray.